Welcome to a Path to You, the Top Film Society podcast that's all about falling in love on the big screen. I'm your host, Manish Mather, and we are continuing with the Bad Romance miniseries with quite a uh, quite an interesting movie, uh, a 1945 film noir, melodrama, technicolor, you know, nightmare, fantasy, leave her to heaven, starring uh, the great Gene Tierney, um, directed by Joseph N. Stahl. Um, and I have with me here a really exciting guest coming back from, wow, almost three years ago. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Melanie Greenberg, uh, who has the YouTube channel Pardesi Reviews, talking about uh, Indian cinema and also is co host of the K drama podcast, uh, Daybuck. Yeah. Um, welcome back, Melanie. It's great to have you back. I was so thrilled that you asked me back on the podcast and also that you introduced me to this fantastic film. <laughs> um, I didn't know anything about it. And I mean, from what I'm reading about it, it is such an iconic classic of the, the genre. And I was so um, I, I sent you in our, our private chat. I was like, I was literally saying, wow, out loud <laughs> while I was watching certain scenes in this movie. So I'm so glad that you suggested this one for us to watch. Yes. Um, I was really, uh, you know, when I was making the list of movies to talk about on this miniseries, uh, this really was one of the first ones that I thought of, uh, just because to me, it it's kind of the... I you know I won't say it's the first of sort of these like obsessive stalker type movies, but you know I don't know if that for sure, but it's definitely a prototype and definitely one of the influences on movies like Fatal Attraction and Gone Girl and um, you know and I just want to point out that I call the director Joseph M. Stahl. His name is John M. Stahl. So oh, okay. he's the director. I I guess I misremembered. Um, but um, yeah, so this was a, it's a fun movie that I, I also discovered only a few years ago. I think during, um, I think it was uh, one of those movies that uh, the Criterion Collection put out that I had always heard about and always kind of knew about. But, you know, the cover was so striking. I had to uh, procure the movie uh, just to have that Blu-ray cover on my shelf. Um, you know, it's the classic scene with her and the sunglasses out on the water. Yeah. Um, so I but... watched it just sort of like totally not knowing anything about it, just knowing that the general premise and was really struck by um, the, the the visuals of the film, the performances, and sort of this like bonkers story that I feel is very radical for its time period. Um, all the more so, all well, the more so also... for being like, you know, this bright technicolor. That's exactly look. what I was going to say, because it's, it feels like a film noir and you're kind of taken aback because it is the full lush technicolor. And I happened to watch it on an amazing HD print that was on YouTube. So this is a film that's readily available for free. The entire film was on YouTube and it's not cropped in any way. It's the regular square, um, you know, aspect ratio from the original film. And it's that it was strikingly good and the colors were amazing. And I was like, wow, <laughs> because <Yeah. laughs> it's just, it's kind of like the two things don't, it's like these two things don't belong together, like film noir and it being so lush technicolor at the same time <laughs> and especially yeah. with the costuming um you know i read of course that the cinematographer um was the one oscar win for this film and boy i can see why it's um i think it was all filmed in california but the setting is supposed to be both new mexico and um you know the backwoods of maine and it's just really um striking cinematography um and the costuming oh my god <laughs> oh my gosh the outfits that gene tyranny is wearing like just you know casual around the cabin <laughs> you know chiffon you know as you as you do 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> these costumes are, um, you know, I when I was going to watch this movie, I wanted to suggest to my, I, I suggested to my my boyfriend. I was like, we should watch this together. Like, he's not really a movie person. Um, so it's kind of sometimes a, a sell to, to watch a movie with him. Uh, and I was like, oh, you know, you'll love the costuming because he works in fashion. And uh, so that, that was the, the my major selling point to him. Uh, but he was like, you know, I, I, was like, I don't know what you're telling me by making me watch a movie about a woman who gets obsessed with her husband. <laughs> and I was like, nothing, I promise. Um, but I do want to mention the cinematographer is named uh, Leon Shamroy, uh, and he also won Oscar, won an Oscar for Cleopatra from 1963, oh, okay. and was nominated for you know The King and I, South Pacific, um, The Agony and the Ecstasy. So he's very much a lush guy, yeah. Um, you know, very much a uh, professional and kind of doing these very beautiful, colorful, vibrant movies, and I think you know, for him to kind of put that kind of, you know, camera work on a very dark story, I think makes it all the more um, shocking, I think, because it's, right. you know, like you I were mean, saying, it's, you, you might see this movie in black and white, but seeing it in this, not not just in color, but this like very glamorous look is very, yes. quite contradictory yeah. in a really interesting way. The The striking scene that literally made me say, wow, out loud, is um, um, Ellen, Jean Tierney's character, and her uh, mother and sister have come to New Mexico to spread Ellen's father's ashes on the plateau, you know, that they used to ride to. And so, um, but the, the way it is shot, she she is striding on a horse, holding the urn of the ashes and spraying the ashes from side to side over the horse. And, and it's just with this gorgeous um, sunrise <laughs> in New Mexico setting. And it just so, I mean, I, I, just the way it was filmed and how gorgeous that scene is and the way that Jean Tierney is carrying herself in that scene as Ellen. Wow. Like, it, it was amazing. And it was so striking. Um, I read after I watched this how many um, allusions there are to Greek mythology, and I guess that that scene and the way she's holding the urn is, you know, similar to I guess a famous statue or something. And then, yeah. you know, also the very first thing that she says to um, a Cornell Wilde character when they meet on a train. She's staring at him in this intense, creepy way. And then she says, oh, I'm sorry. You just, it's so, the resemblance to my father is striking and I couldn't get over it. I'm like, okay, that's that's a line to start with. <laughs> but again, that's supposed to, you know, again, allusions to classical um, Greek mythology and just, Wow. Like it just did this obsessive relationship that she had with her father. And then it's carried over to Richard and, and, you know, she can't, like, you know, when she, she's the one that asked him to marry her, she kind of tricks him into it. And then <laughs> it's like, I'm never going to let you go. Never, never, never. <laughs> like, <laughs> like right, right from the beginning, you're like, whoa. <laughs> so she's so intense. From the first moments that we see her, we're not like, I mean, we like her, we're captivated by her in the same way that Cornel Wilde's character is, but she has that intensity and that over the edge obsessiveness from the very beginning. And then it just goes in twisted ways. I mean, the minute that we're introduced to the the younger brother, I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I know where we're going with this. <laughs> so, but to watch it, watch, watch it all happen was incredible. The way that Jean Tierney plays this character, um, unbelievable. So, yeah, she was nominated for an Oscar for this and deservedly so because it was an amazing performance. Yeah, no, I mean, her intensity is really striking. And I mean, yeah, like that, you know, that proposal scene, and I think all, all these scenes where she's displaying such like, possessive, you know, jealousy is, they're so scary, but also very captivating, right? And it's like, you can see why 
you know, her Cornell Wilde was like just taken with her and you're kind of taken with her too. And it's like, right. you find ways to, you know, find the like, you know, that's like, you find ways to sort of like justify, I guess, or just kind of be like, oh, I, I kind of understand it. And she's so transfixing and it's kind of very alluring. And I, and it's also like, you might not be able to escape her at all. So like, you might as right. well give in, you know? Right. Um, right. And like your allusions to Greek mythology. Yeah. Like I had read that, like, she is kind of like a mermaid figure, like a siren who is very like seductive from the water um, yeah. and just like pulls people in and then they can't, get out and it's like yeah like that's exactly how she is it's like once she kind of like hooks you in you really can't escape it and uh even if you know that you know you need to get away from her it's like you just can't because she's so she just has this quality to her right i mean the setting i mean this film was released in 1945 it seems crazy i mean it was a whirlwind they marry in a matter of days but i mean that's also of a time when you couldn't have sex, you know, respectably unless you were married. So people who had that intense attraction to each other, did they did have these amazing, you know, romances after a day or a couple of weeks or whatever. Um, but she's already engaged when she yeah. meets Richard, you know, and he, not- you know, he notices her engagement ring, comments on it. I mean, he's captivated with her. And then he notices when she takes that ring off. And then it's delightful. Vincent Price plays her fiance. Like, it was just, my husband walked through the room and he's like, wow. I get to see him young and in a um, straight, non-horror kind of role. You know, it was really, um, that was really something. Uh, And you think, I've thought, oh, he just has this little cameo at the beginning as a fiance. But then his role is as a district attorney. So we see him late in the movie in a trial scene. Um, and so he gets his chance to really showboat um, towards the end of the film in a big scene. But um, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was it was quite something the way that um, this Ellen character traps Richard because she announces to her fiance and surprise, yeah, I, I'm getting married. <laughs> Richard's yeah. just standing there like, what 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 <laughs> we're what now <laughs> and then, yeah you know, and then after mr price leaves she's like will you marry me <laughs> and he's like well i guess i gotta <laughs> yeah i guess so now <laughs> so it's yeah. so intense yeah it, it's it's really intense and and i mean i just like love this performance i i really think it's one of the great kind of villain performances but villain but also kind of like not a villain i'm kind of like i'm in awe of her i'm like this is a woman who knows what she wants and she she gets it um and uh but i just well i guess kind of like circle kind of like rewind a bit like what's your kind of like um relationship with like movies of this era like film noir melodrama like how I mean, um, I, I, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't necessarily seek. I've actually never seen Fatal Attraction, which is obviously influenced by this film, just from what I've heard about it in popular yeah. culture. But I don't necessarily seek out um, femme fatale, femme noir kind of films. And I have, I mean, I have seen quite a few classic films, but this was one that was new to me. Mm-hmm. And I have seen. Um, Jean Tierney and the Ghost and Mrs. Muir, um, yeah. and I think the the woman that plays her sister, um, Jean Crane, I've seen in Cheaper by the Dozen, you know, in like supporting roles. But right, it to me it was it was like I was seeing really fresh faces because the Ghost and Mrs. Muir, where Jean Tierney plays Mrs. Muir, that's a completely different kind of role. Yeah. So, right. So that was what was kind of fun about this is like seeing actors from this era who were, you know, relative that were, you know, big, but that were fresh to me. So that was, um, that was really fun. But I, I mean, I love more, um, musicals, you know, from the thirties and the forties, like Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly. And that's how I started my love of Indian films because musicals are so completely rare 
in Western <laughs> cinema anymore. Yeah, I, mean, we, yeah. I mean, you can count over the last couple of years, you know, like over the last five years, you could probably count them on one hand. You know, you have La La Land, you know, thank, thank you, Hugh Jackman for existing, but you know, like he can't do it all by himself. You know? So, so to be able to see musicals all the time, like what I enjoyed in those classic uh, musicals of the thirties, forties and fifties in Hollywood, I turn to Indian cinema because I can see a musical every week <laughs> in the right, theater right. in Indian cinema. Um, so yeah, this wasn't necessarily my genre, but there's something also just about that technicolor look, you know? I mean, it's, I, I, I will say the language, especially of this film feels so much more formal and stagey, you know, yeah. maybe than some other um, films that I think of, because I think of the romantic comedies, um, you know, it happened one night or, so, you know, things like that, where it's just, it just this um, quick banter and it, it, you know, it feels a much more natural. And this had a very stagey, but the scene that you alluded to that was on the cover of the DVD, once we hit that scene on the lake, when she watches um spoiler alert like you know, when, <laughs> oh when yeah she this watches, is a spoiler podcast yeah right, right when she watches um richard's um brother um drown and it, you know that is you know just it, it just feels like you're off to the races from that point on to the end of the film and you're just so immersed in the world of it but at the beginning of the film it does feel there's this very stilted kind of old-timey language to to the film so for any of us anybody listening don't be put off by that because the rewards that you will get from watching this film yeah. um it, you know you just the performances, um, you, you you just you will be rewarded. It's under two hours, <laughs> you know. Like it, this, take it's for free on YouTube. You should definitely take a chance because I can see how many films have been influenced from this film, from this performance, from um, you know the whole setup of this of this film. Now, um, one thing that I found that was interesting um, after they have this whirlwind romance in New Mexico and get married. They forego their honeymoon and they go to Warm Springs, Georgia, to uh, where Richard's younger brother, Danny, is convalescing. And to me, it was so interesting that they never explain what his ailment is, because in 1945, you wouldn't have to explain right, <laughs> why, right. why, there, why there would be a young um, teen or a young man in a wheelchair who needed to learn how to walk again. Obviously he had polio. Warm Springs, uh, Georgia is where um, President Roosevelt went to convalesce. It was a famous mm -hmm. place to go. But it's it's interesting to think about how polio is so out of our mind in the current in the modern world that, you know, like as, I mean, I recognize what it was, but I was just thinking about how many younger viewers might look at that and just have absolutely no idea why why he was in a wheelchair why he was convalescing like they never discuss it because it's not needed to be discussed at that time that the movie came out yeah um, I, I did think the the young actor that played um danny was very good and um you know there's just a lot of small supporting roles of actors that i have seen in so many different um films you know like even the doctor that treats her when she's pregnant i read you know i think it was in a, it's a wonderful life and other films you know you've just those just kind of supporting uh players that you've seen in so many different films um so oh daryl hickman was the name of the young man that played um the younger brother danny so um you know, I think it's just an amazing film all around, but, the, you know, your focus and the, the outstanding performance in the entire film is Gene Tierney as as Alan. I mean, Cornel Wilde as Richard is fine. I'm just saying he's <laughs> a fine leading man, but I'm just saying compared to the way Gene Tierney is blown, is burning up the screen, it's like he can't even compare, you know, to how great she is. It's almost admirable, like, how much he just, like, lets her just, like, take over the entire movie. Um, yes. And I kind of wonder, like, you know, you know, you got to wonder, like, if a Cary Grant or, 
you know, one of these like more famous actors were kind of like, oh, I don't know if I want to take this role where I'm basically getting terrorized by a woman for two hours. Um, not that Cornell Wilde wasn't famous, but like, I don't think he right. was like an A-list box office right. superstar, you know? Well, um, I mean, this is the beauty of the the studio system of the time, right? Yeah. Like there, there were, there were trade-offs and these master producers um, like Daryl Zenick that put this film together, right? You know, yeah. they were like, I'll give you this if you, you know, do this one for me and I'll give you this other one, you yeah. know, kind of a kind yeah. of deal, you know? So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, it's so much uh, Gene Tierney's uh, movie completely. Um I read a um, a really interesting bit of trivia about her performance um, because um, she, I think the the director John Stahl was kind of nervous about her performance in the um, the swimming scene because uh, it's like the to me that's like the, the centerpiece of the movie. It's kind of when the movie becomes like okay, it's kind of an interesting romantic drama about this kind of possessive woman, and then you know she basically like. <laughs> murders her brother-in-law and not yeah. not not by her own hands but she does nothing to save him right. um, and you're just kind of like oh okay this is where the movie is going and she really has you know and the, this kid Daryl Hookman I think he's also a very good performance he's very sweet and very innocent and you're just like this kid you gotta love him right. but she very coldly lets him drown and I um Jean, I remember like uh John Stahl was very I guess nervous about this performance and he was like you're not going to get it you're not going to get it um so he had to rehearse it and he was like oh you rehearsed it perfectly but you there's no way that you can redo that performance when we do the take and she was like well i've been practicing it for weeks now because i i guess she knew that it was like the centerpiece the of the movie scene. yeah she's it's the scene if she doesn't sell it then the movie kind of doesn't go anywhere um so she was like i i got this that's okay <laughs> and she's like i've been doing it the exact same way for weeks because this is you know and so yeah. i you know she was a yeah you know, she had a very sad life jean tierney yeah. um but um a lot of challenges she faced um but a phenomenal actress and i think that like a, a very consummate professional um and yeah. uh, i mean th- we have to talk about that scene it's like i think there's like two scenes where you're like oh my god wow this is this lady is intense that's one of them and the other is when she pushes herself down the stairs oh yeah um, oh my god <laughs> but um yeah i mean that that scene it's the scene on the water is very chilling because it's one of those scenes where you're like i feel like i know where this is going but i well i guess let me ask you because i don't quite remember my first reaction but for you were you like this kid's not going to make it out of the water or were like i mean like, i almost dread? i almost thought uh just because i'd kind of read just a summary of her sure. being obsessively um, jealous of anyone else in the life, but I didn't know specifically who was going to be mar- who was going to be murdered going into the movie. Right. But the be- minute that we were introduced to Danny and that we saw that he was um, recovering from polio, and I mean, we just has this, have this harsh scene like she's trying to ingratiate herself with her husband as this perfect wife who goes to the um, convalescent home every day and and spends so much time with Danny and and secretly trying to get him to learn to relearn to walk and everything and and I was just like ah this kid this kid's not yeah. up for this world <laughs> right but I didn't know how exactly it was going to happen and then when they showed the scenes of him swimming in Maine, which was something that polio convalescents were encouraged to do. They were encouraged to get muscle toned back through swimming. Hmm. Um, I was like, okay, this is probably how it's going to happen. But I didn't know, like, is she going to push him off the side of a boat? Like, I wasn't expecting it to be the, hey, let's see if you can swim all the way across, (laughs) across the uh, bay or whatever you know all the way to the point um and then just to sit there oh it looks like you're having trouble <laughs> you know just i mean i'm paraphrasing i don't but she just sort of had this dead tone um you know just watching watching him flounder and just so coldly just watching him go under and again and again and just sit there and only the minute that she sees Richard on the shore where he could see her 
does she then start yelling and jump into the water? But she already knows it doesn't matter. It's yeah. too late. It's too late. It's um, almost more cruel and violent yes. that she does it that way. Yes. It's, you know, because it's like, you know, this this poor kid, I'm like, he's too naive to know this woman's crazy. <laughs> and yeah. so, like, he trusts her and he's, you know, swimming out there in courage and he's like, yeah, I want to do this with my brother and I want to get stronger and whatever. And, like, that she, and, like, I feel like he also trusts her as an adult who cares about him to, like, pull him out if she thinks it gets too dangerous. But, like, right. I, it's it's so disturbing. Um, and yet just very, like, I find myself disturbed, but also, like, cackling a little, being like, wow, this movie's really going there. And it's, yes. like, for, you know, it's kind of, like, this movie has, like, camp quality to it. And it, I think it, like, balances that that like that divide pretty well of being like it's not so campy that it loses all of its own like power but it's also like fun and and like you're just kind of like what is she going to do next like once she right. does that it's like well she's capable of anything right. and then she does right. even worse things later right um, i mean her her husband goes into a deep depression because they never explain but you kind of gather that this is his only family member that's left yeah, his younger yeah. brother and 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 so he's completely alone can't even be at this beloved cabin that he had spent so much time um with his brother so they're at the um ellen's family uh place in bar harbor so somewhere you know on the coast of maine and and you just see you know when ellen's sister suggests oh well you know maybe if you guys had a baby then maybe that would pull him out out of this you know, depression. And then it's like, that's the only re reason that she even wants to have someone else in their relationship. But then the fact that her, her pregnancy is precarious and she's told to just lie on a couch and do the equivalent of, you know, the modern equivalent of bed rest to try to um, keep the pregnancy. And then when she just realizes he's becoming closer to her, you know, adopted sister, cousin, Ruth, that's when she gets the idea, oh, if I just got rid of this baby, I could do everything, you know, and we could go back to normal. Now, now he's over this depression of his brother. You know, why do we need why do we need to bring a, a, a baby into this? And just the way that she coldly decides um to put on heels and and to purposely like the scene of her pushing her toe underneath, you know, lifting up a, a strip of carpet and sticking her toe under and looking down this, you know, steps. And I was reading how this was really a, a point for censors of, you know, there wasn't, you know, abortion was not something that you're supposed to be including in, you know, wholesome entertainment, Hollywood entertainment, right? Yeah. And so the fact that she is purposely trying to have a miscarriage, I think was really on the edge, um, you know, for a 1945 movie. Um, it, You know what? It would be still pretty on the edge if a scene was played exactly like that in 2023. Yeah. Because yeah. it is just so shocking as she is looking, you know, that's how much how intense she is that she's willing to throw herself down a flight of wooden stairs to force herself to have a miscarriage. Like, oh my gosh, it is. <laughs> you're right. Those are the two intense scenes where you're like, oh my God, they're really going there. But she's really doing this. This character is really on the edge. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, I'm glad you brought up the, the censorship because um, it's, I, I read, like, I also had read that this was a, um, um, uh, that this was a point of contention with the censors. And I read that, like, what the screenwriters did was that they kind of made other parts. This is a common tactic, I believe, uh, during the censorship era, is that, like, you kind of fill your script with, like, really, like, stuff that will never pass. And they kind of, like, will gloss mm -hmm. over their what you can well, keep you know, filmmakers you know. filmmakers do that today when they're trying they to get an R rating, right? They, right, they right. put in super violent stuff and they're like, oh, if you cut that out, then. <laughs> right, know? right. So what I, I think what the screenwriters had done for this movie is that they put in like a kind of in the beginning that they were that uh, Ellen and Richard were having an affair. Um, 
illicit extramarital affair. And like, the censors were like, well, that can't happen. And I guess they just allow, and they were like, you have to make it clear that this is like the villainous thing to do and that this is yeah. a, a thing of her her jealousy of her possessiveness of her insanity um and not um i, I guess they were like yeah we don't right. want to encourage people to like throw themselves down the stairs and i was like i don't well you know, yeah i mean you know. i think some of those elements like the extramarital <laughs> affair were the an original novel okay, written right. by ben ames williams and when i read that he got a hundred thousand dollars in 1945 for before this film this book was even published to get the film rights for this i'm like wow <laughs> right like a hundred thousand dollars in 1945 that seems pretty incredible so yeah. i mean even before the book came out but yeah i think there were things that they had to change as you pointed out like i think in the book they do have you know sex before a marriage yeah. in the in the scenes and in New Mexico when they first meet so yeah they took some of that out but they left they left this bonkers scene where she forces a miscarriage and it's not like I mean, never never seen seen sort of like that where somebody goes horseback riding or something when you know that they shouldn't but there's something different about I don't know. There's just something different about those kind of scenes than this, where someone is coldly sticking their shoe underneath the carpet to make themselves yeah. trip, trip down a full flight of wooden stairs. It just, especially the way it's filmed, it's just so cold and, 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 you know, cause you, you have this moments of anticipation. It's not like something that just suddenly abruptly happens. We have, we linger at the top of those stairs as she's judging. You think this will do this? As she's looking down the stairs, I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's really executed quite well. Um, and it's also the like disregard for her own life um because she could yeah. easily have just killed herself doing that or god forbid it doesn't work and she just keeps trying i mean there's just like right she could have broken it, her neck anything she could have broken her neck her spine her i mean even just her leg or what i mean just yeah so it's just like this very like cold kind of lack of any kind of emotion or remorse or anything and it's really just um yeah well i mean there's three there's three murders in this movie mm. one is of the younger brother of her husband one is of her unborn child and the third is of herself because yeah. she plots her own suicide sends a letter to her ex-fiance who is a district attorney and sets, sets in stage to um to make her uh sister cousin um you know be charged with her murder because she switches um i guess her i can't remember if we knew from the beginning that her father was a chemist or something but you know there's all these chemicals in the basement so she pulls up a big bottle of arsenic and carefully without getting fingerprints on changes sugar you know for arsenic um yeah so that she's poisoned she poisons herself like it's you know that i mean and she's just like you know not only you know if, if you're gonna leave me if you're gonna divorce me then I'm never letting you go. Like you're never, you know, she's just like, then she's not going to have me either. Cause she's going to be in jail. So it's, um, yeah. she's, she's just diabolical to the, her very last breath. Yeah. I mean, it just, um, it's such a crazy plot and, uh, it's, um, I feel very like, you know, you get that same kind of like, it's, um, you get that same kind of like thrill of like watching something like that like as i get like watching movie like gone girl where it's just like yeah. wow you really put so much thought into this and like planned out every last second of it and it's right. quite it's like it's masterful um right. and just right. like you know it's so um yeah it's 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 really interesting and you know i, I really do love this like courtroom scene because it's like there's so much um like it just sounds so crazy when when he says all the things that that's happened in this movie and um it's really uh yeah i mean well what did you think of sort of the this the climax I, I mean the courtroom scenes like i said it was so fun seeing seeing vincent price yeah really be able to showboat 
But, you know, he puts Richard on the stand and it's just like, do you love your <laughs> your <Yeah. laughs> sister-in-law? You know, are you in love with her? Did you when did you fall out of love with your life? Did, wife? Did you love her at this point? Did you love her at this point? You know, what about when this happened? You know, and it's just um, it's such a dramatic courtroom scene. Yeah. And the, I mean, the whole movie is set up as a flashback. It's his defense attorney that is telling this story to some other people in Maine because we see Richard's character going off in a canoe. We learn that it's after he's come out of two years in prison and then he's going back to this, you know, to this cabin um, that meant so much to him. And and so and so the lawyer is telling the full story that couldn't all be told in the courtroom. But then we do see this amazing dramatic courtroom scene. What boggles my mind is that um, the Wikipedia article mentions when this film was released. It was released Christmas week, Christmas week. (laughs) Okay, like I suppose in modern day, if something was going to be an Oscar movie, they would release it maybe around Christmas time to get maximum impact around um, Academy voters attention over the winter holidays. But my God, I'm just thinking in 1945, like, here you go. Here's some murder for your Christmas week. I know that's, that's really (laughs) wild to me. Um, But this one was a big hit. Um, Huge hit. It was, I think, you know, it was one of the biggest for this studio. I think it was one of the biggest hits for them for the entire year. Yeah, and I mean, it's not surprising because I think, you know, Ellen herself is a very, um, you know, she's a very delectable villain. I think she's very compelling. Um, and I think it's one of the few times that, you know, this kind of like noirish thriller had a female villain that was um, like the main protagonist i mean i could be wrong about that but like it feels very unique to itself and it's like unique that this thriller is has this very lush kind of glamorous look and um you know this this movie just feels very singular like it spawns so many movies that have been influenced by it but even so it feels very of itself and feels like it has really a um uh, it has such a like unique kind of flavor to it, you know. There's absolutely. really, it's like absolutely. I mean, because this woman does like really horrendous things, but also you're kind of, I mean, like I'm kind of like, hey, you know, like go get it, girl, <laughs> you know. I, I mean, you know, just we're we're sort of, you know, Richard is us, right? Like we're yeah. both fascinated and repelled at the same time. You know, yeah. we, we we you know you can't look away from her. She's intensely staring at Richard and us and the audience and you know we're staring right back because she's so compelling um i thought it was interesting when you know richard realizes that she's so obsessively jealous and mentions to her mother you know and her mother's like oh you know she's fine she just loves too much Mm, (laughs) and it's like I mean, talk about Stockholm syndrome, you know, that here her family has lived with her all her life. And before Richard, it was her obsessive love for her father that was the whole dynamic of their family. You know, I mean, they mentioned that the fact that this cousin was adopted in as Ellen's sister, Ruth, um, was because you know the mother was kind of left out as the third wheel in this relationship between Ellen and her father you know this obsessive relationship so um you know this dynamic that Ellen had of being obsessively loving someone and jealously loving someone um you know once her father died she almost immediately you know she's transferred all of that obsession on to Richard. And I had, you know, but you have some sympathy for her, for instance, like she gave up her husband because she knew her honeymoon with her husband because she knew how much he loved his younger brother and wanted to see him. Okay, so they go to Warm Springs and you're like, oh, that's great. That's so nice. Right. But then once they get to Maine, and she says she's trying to figure out a way for this kid to not come with them to the cabin in Maine. And she says to the doctor, but he's a cripple. Like, you know. <laughs> and even in 1945, just the way that she says it, it's so harsh. Yeah. Like that is a banned word now. Right. But yeah. you think in, in 1945, that wouldn't be as much of a, 
you know, an out of out of bounds word yeah. to say. Yeah. But yet the way that she delivers it and the way the the doctor looks at her like, what did you just say? What did you just yeah. say? You know? Yeah. And then, then she realizes, okay, I can't get out of this of bringing the kid brother. But then the claustrophobic nature of this cabin, the fact that the walls are so thin. And that the brother can just knock and say good morning on the other side of the wall. Like she cannot stand how she's just trapped in this cabin, which wasn't that tiny, to be honest with you. But even so, you know, that that the walls were thin. And then the fact the husband thinks he's doing something nice and he invites his sister and his mother and her mother. Oh, <laughs> look at her face when you like what we're already crowded with these these two people extra people and now you're inviting more people in like she just was sulking oh man i mean you sort of feel for her though it's like she yeah. wants to just have this private time with her new husband and he's oblivious like he's oblivious like oh i thought it'd be nice <laughs> for you to spend more time with your family well as a newlywed, that's not what she wanted. <laughs> yeah, you know? I mean, I definitely was like, that's a classic husband moment. I'm like, you know, how how are you going to have any kind of, like, intimacy as a couple with these thin walls and this, like, precocious kid brother there and the, like, I don't, their friend, you know, right. um, groundskeeper or whatever, and then bringing in, like, the mother and the sister. I'm like, come on, guy. Read yeah. the room a bit. <laughs> right, right, um, exactly. Like he's so clueless. Um, and so like, I really get her her point of view. And I, I mean, I I want to talk about Ruth, um, and the and the mother a little bit too because, um, I feel that they, you know, they're. It it it's interesting to me. Like you know, the mother says she loves too much. I'm like to me, like any kind of guy with some kind of awareness but might pick up on that a little bit i feel like right. the, the husband kind of misses what that means and i of course right. you know it's a code but it's one that yeah. like you're kind of like interesting um but i, I really love this relationship between ruth and ellen because um you know El ruth mentions like you know when uh when we were kids like you, you bullied me you tortured me and um, you know, there's this distance between them because I think they were kind of each raised by a different parent and kind of mm. favored one parent. Um, and, um, but I like, you know, I love that scene when Ruth kind of stands up for herself yes. saying like, yes. I, I actually pity you. I'm not afraid of you anymore. Um, and I think right. that really kind of shakes Ellen because it's like, she isn't really used to being pitied. And I think that's a really embarrassing emotion for her you know i absolutely love that scene because ellen is so scary that in a way you could see um ruth being um super careful around richard about you know not wanting to uh have any jealousy because she's lived with ellen her whole night life she knows how she thinks she knows how bad it could get right yeah and yet she's like you bullied me my whole life and you just sort of see that ruth has reached this point of like i don't care anymore you can't do do anything to me you know, and th and that's sort of a dare in a way of Ellen's like, oh, you think I can't do anything to you? <laughs> but I, I just do love the way, as you said, Ruth stands up for herself and she says the worst possible thing for Ellen, I pity you. You know, yeah. and I mean, that's just so uh, like a dagger to her psyche. Like, what? <laughs> I'm not one that you pity. You're the one that should be pitied, right? Because you're you're single and unmarried, right? The, you, I mean, it's all the su subtext, you know, things that aren't said. But I just absolutely love that confrontation. And I love the way Ruth stood up for herself. And we should mention that this is a film that does have a happy ending because all through the film, you kind of see Ruth would be the better match for Richard. Right? Yeah. They're just more, you see it from the almost the opening scenes. I mean, it's Ellen that he meets first on the train and he has this obsession, obsessive love. But when you see uh, just from those opening scenes of Richard and Ruth interacting, you're like, this would be the better, better couple. They're more in sync with each other. They're more of the same temperament. Yeah. And and um and so it is satis has a satisfying ending. 
I don't know if a modern movie would give us that happy ending. Do you know what I'm saying? They might leave it in a place of darkness. Yeah. And it is wonderful that this 1945 movie, we finally go back to that opening scene where he's in the canoe and heading to the cabin and there's Ruth is there waiting for him. And um, I mean, I suppose once I saw it, I was like, of course. Right. But as we're going through the trial and all of this other stuff, it wasn't a given that that was going to be the ending that we were going to get, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think what's kind of, you know, one of my favorite tropes of these film noir, like every great femme fatale movie has the like, the good girl, you know, yeah, like yeah. in you know, um in the- um in Fatal Attraction is Anne Hache's character. Um not, is it Anne Hache? Anne Archer, I think maybe. Anne Archer, I think. Yeah. Um and uh, you know, in uh in you know, there's one in Double Nemonity, there's one in Sunset Boulevard. Like it's always there's always that other counterpoint. And sometimes it's kind of like, well, you know, is he is the hero meant to be with her because she's pure, virginal, good, innocent, whatever? Mm-hmm, and I, I mm-hmm. think Ruth falls into that, but I, I think they do a pretty, you know, uh, they do a really good job of like establishing that kind of rapport they have. So it's like, right. yeah, they actually feel like they feel like they're not exactly flirting because, like, they, you know, their camaraderie feels very friendly and it's like, yeah, they're helping each other out. It's professional, but there's an undercurrent of like, I think she's, uh, of course, you know, I think from the minute she sees him, she's in love with him. And it's quite obvious to me, but I like that they really underplay it. Um, yes. Yes. And they really do. Um, I think the two actors have a very like chemistry that could kind of go either way. They could like be fine as friends and keep platonic and respectful, or they could like fall in love. Um, and so I, I really appreciated that dynamic. Uh, right. I mean, Ruth could be in another movie. She could just be a cardboard cutout kind yeah. of a character, as you say, just the good girl with no other personality to her. And I love that they added some details and some scenes that fleshed her out a little bit more and that made us really um, glad and feel a sense of such satisfaction at the end when they do end up together yeah yeah and it's also not like overplayed that happy ending um right which i I really like as well so i i I agree with you um and i you know i do kind of like this dynamic between ellen and and her mother just like her mother's terrified and that's probably why she was like able to survive being married to you know ellen's father um and not get killed herself because I feel like she just is like very much afraid of her. Um, and I think like she was able to, con- cause I, you know, I, I'm wondering, I'm like, what was their, uh, what was their family life like with this kind right. of dynamic of this like very intense, um, uh, Electra complex. Is that yes, the, Electra, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That's the Fro- Freudian thing. Like, I wonder what that household was like. And I think clearly poor Ruth was tortured. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, yeah, I wonder, they don't talk a lot about what was the father really like. They just talk about how obsessively um, that the father and daughter and father and Ellen just had this intense bond that kind of shut out the rest of the family. But they don't really say, like, was he a strong man? Was he as strong as Ellen? Was he um, or, you know, or did he... Or was Ellen the stronger one, you know, as she grew up? You know, you, you, yeah. you don't really you don't really know. Um yeah. but yeah, I mean, this is a mother that's seen it for years and years and years, and also just kind of you know, just kind of uh rationalized, right? That this is just the way my daughter is. Yeah. And not and not really realizing because when you live that this is your lived normal, you don't you know, maybe she just doesn't realize this is this isn't normal the way yeah. that your daughter is acting, yeah. right? She she just you just hear that that's the phrase that she probably tells herself. She just loves too much, yeah. You know? right. And and you know, in 1945, did we have the psychological? It, you know, you know what I mean. Do we have all the background and abnormal psychology and whatever that everyone in in popular culture kind of has absorbed from all these right. other movies and right. content, right? So, um, you know, I mean, she maybe just didn't have the words to describe 
um, what, you know, that this, but again, like this, this is just the normal of our family, right? So um, I think there's a little bit of denial there just, and, but also just knowing, okay, yeah, we got to leave Maine <laughs> when you're visiting and she could just read the room like, uh, yeah, she doesn't want us here. We need to just leave, you know, and, um, you know, just you you wonder of, of the years of everyone having to tiptoe around Ellen's moods, right, and accommodate to, to keep Ellen um, in a good mood so that the family, you know, everything wasn't just constant tension and chaos. Yeah, right? and I, I feel like what kind of sets Richard apart and why it kind of sends her off the deep end is kind of it's like he kind of pushes back a bit and he's like well no my brother has to stay with us and you know this guy that lives in our house has to be a part of the family and I'm gonna you know it's like he right and, and husband, I have to do my, and I have to do my work I have to do and she's like I yeah. hate your chapters I hate your chapters yeah, right 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 I mean he he doesn't go off to work to an office he's there in front of her face writing his book but yet separate from her right yeah. because he's absorbed with his book and not absorbed with her in that moment she doesn't even want when they're living in warm springs she doesn't even want a housekeeper and he teases her about that because she doesn't want anyone else in their household um she wants to obsessively wash every clothes make every meal for him you know do all these things herself um and and he just thinks that's amusing at that point it's not alarming it just seems strange and odd to him he's like we can afford help why don't you want it you know yeah yeah i mean it's really um yeah i mean her her possessiveness is like it's so all-consuming and yet it's like he doesn't quite get it until like i think the last act of the movie and it's yeah um yeah it's just like i don't know i I really i really enjoy this movie i find it to be really um just like fun to talk about and to think over because you know i guess i kind of like my last talking point is you know like well you know, kind of like looking at this movie through like our modern lens, which is like not right. something I love to do for older older movies, but um, you know, like you know, we're talking about like how this movie does. Like, you do empathize with Ellen, and and you do kind of see like ways in which that like you know, not that he like caused her possessiveness, but ways in which he maybe have like activated or like triggered it a bit. And like you know, well, you know, it makes you wonder. Like, is this movie ultimately feminist? Is it misogynist? Is it kind of a combination of the two? You know, really, I I don't like to put movies on that kind of binary because I think they're a little bit more complicated than that. But it does make me wonder, kind of like ultimately, like what's my takeaway from this movie, and kind of like what you know, like having seen it a few times, and I, I'm just curious to hear from your perspective as someone who's like just watched it for the first time for this podcast. Well, I mean, it's definitely based on a book written by a man and the the, the um, screenwriter who adapted it from the book was also a man, even though his name was Joe, J-O, you know, I yeah. looked up and I was, because that could have been um, Sounds like a Josephine. woman's, it uh, could have been a woman's name. Yeah. And so it's definitely, you know, if you look at it one lens, it's like she's trapped in this domestic sphere where she has no other outlet Right. Like she couldn't have her own career. She couldn't do her own thing. So the only thing that she had to be obsessed about was her husband. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, the writers have taken it to an extreme that she wouldn't even allow a child into their, you know, their, their little bubble of their relationship. Um, so they've taken things to an extreme, but it's, you know, in the modern world, it seems like we've seen, we don't often see these kind of stories about women. We more think of them as, you know, the obsessive men, right? right. Who, um, or the incels or whatever, who just um, do these, um, you know, narcissistic things and and can have this warped sense of themselves and of relationships. And, and so, you know, yeah, it, it's like it's it, it's like it's feminist, and it's also because it's through this lens of these men writing about this woman wrapped in this, you know, she's trapped in this domestic sphere, 
um, you know, it, you know, it has echoes of both, right? Like it's like it's right. it's kind of holding up this mirror and saying, "This is how crazy women can be when you don't allow them any other outlets, <laughs> right?" Like you know, you can, you know, this is why, um, you know, what women feel trapped or whatever. But it's also Alan is such a singular character, right? Like she is her own. She is just such a singular, um, unique character even though there's tropes that we've seen in other things, like she is so iconic in and of herself. I'm never going to forget this particular character. Right. Yeah. And I, I like, mean, as you said, she may not be the original femme fatale, but sh- there's something so unique about her and the way um, she is portrayed in this movie that is just iconic. And you can see, Oh, this has influenced so many other things. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not maybe the OG, but it feels like this origin point for so many other stories and ways characters have been portrayed and way we think about characters um, from this performance and the way that this character was written. You know, just um, by happenstance, I happened to watch uh, Clint Eastwood's movie Play Misty for me from the 19, I think it must be in the late 1960s, perhaps, early 70s with... um, Jessica Walter, who I've never seen her, you know, when she was younger, I've only have seen her in, you know, Rest of Development and, and, and other stuff from later in her career. And she's a very funny actress, but seeing this very serious kind of role, it's, it's, it's another kind of like obsessive woman type movie. And part of me is like, you know, I like, I, I, I wonder, right, if these like the men who kind of create these stories and who put them on the screen, if, if they're thinking about it in terms of like, well, this is the, like, as you're saying, like trapped in the domestic space with no other creative or ownership, creative outlet or like ownership over anything. And so they have to like latch on. If, that, if they're seeing it that way, or they're just like, hey, you know, women or are- the, Or are they, you know, are they writing about some ex-girlfriend that right, exactly. obsessive about them, right? Yeah. Like- and it's like, well, what do they do to the ex-girlfriend, you know? Right. Like, what do they do their wives? They now they. I mean, because you think about it, Richard does nothing that is wrong, and right. it, it, he he's clueless and in inviting her mother and her sister to their quote unquote honeymoon at the cabin. Yeah. But he's not. He's never mean. He never raises her voice. Even the confrontation scene when she admits and confesses to killing his brother. I don't remember him really shouting. You know, it's not like they, you know, start grappling with each other and get that he ever gets violent. Right. It's the, op- it's the opposite, you know. So he is always the good guy, even if he is the oblivious guy. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, but it's again, it's written from you, you wonder what what was the past that, you know, what was the spur that made this author um, write this story, you know, what, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I wonder, like, you know, I, I'm really not opposed to remakes. Um, and I think we this influential, it's a little hard to remake, uh, but I would love to see like a, you know, a proper remake of this movie that takes place in the 1940s, like, uh, but from like, maybe like a woman writing it or directing it and just mm-hmm. seeing like how, mm-hmm. what, what that would look like. And, um, how if it would be different or if it would kind of be similar i uh um, right you know not that women aren't capable of you know kind of creating sexist pieces of art but like i would just kind of wonder i don't think this movie's even that sexist in my opinion but you know i'm, no, I'm not a woman I, so i don't want to say but. no no but i i, I do wonder like w- would they would they man come off as such a completely goody two-shoes yeah and right? sometimes i, I kind of like that he's clueless but not like aggressively or aggressive or violent or anything because it's like yeah. that would make it too like i don't know it would tip it, it would kind of make her a little bit less of an interesting villain just mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it would like give her too much of a of a motive whereas like right if her only motive is that she just has like i don't know if she even sees herself as a villain i think it's like she just right? sees, no. like i just love him i possess him and i want to possess right. him i want and this is this is how I show my love is by like being his all his everything. Well, I mean, um, I just I just want to be clear, just because I'm a woman, I'm I I think can someone be psychologically bent and obs- love obsessively to the point of destruction yeah. as a woman? Yes, you know today, right? Like, I mean, it may manifest itself in 
different ways, but definitely, definitely that could still happen. Definitely we see characters like that in modern stories. Um, they just, you know, might have a little bit, a different flavor to them than they would to this unique flavor that we're getting in this 1945 classic. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I agree. And I just, do you have any other kind of final thoughts or any kind I mean, of other I, scenes I just, or moments I, you want to bring up? Before I we, just, you know, we talked yeah. a little bit about all the allusions to Greek mythology and Greek mm-hmm. literature and Electra and all of this. And I find that so incredible. It's like, and even the, we didn't even mention the title itself is from a line from Hamlet. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so I, I've just like, it's to me, it's also just so incredible how it, it it's a piece of art that has all of these allusions and it has this richness of symbolism in it that is just right out there, which, um, you know, we don't necessarily maybe see that as much in, in some modern content. So that was just, I, that was just another like added layers to it that um, I really enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked the motif of the the lake and swimming and, Right. Um, you know, uh, like the allusion to like the myth, the myth of the siren and, and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, I really like that line from, from Shakespeare as well and kind of how it's, you know, it, it, it's kind of an interesting line that's being saying like, you know, don't judge her, just kind of leave it up to heaven to, to do that. And it's, right. it's kind of interesting. It's like, it's kind of like, well, don't like, don't hold her accountable and just kind of like leave it up to, God, I mean, I don't right. know. It's, it's right. an interesting concept. And uh, I think um, one that is uh, evocative of how captivating Ellen can be, where it's like she's not even, we're, we're, we as mortals aren't even capable of. You know, right. But I, I love this. I love the second part of the quote. I just pulled it up on Wikipedia. So okay, the line okay. is when the ghost is urging Hamlet not to seek vengeance against Queen Gertrude, but rather to, quote, leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. So that I love that part of it because it's like it's her own jealousy that causes her to commit suicide and, and, you know, it's not Richard that causes violence to her. Mm-hmm. It's she does it to herself. And and um, so, yeah, I love the second part of that quote and how that's comes through in the film itself, too. Yes. Uh, Melanie, well, thank you so much for um, coming on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, please let the listeners know what you're working on, where they can find you and all that good stuff. So, um, as Manish mentioned, um, I have a love of Indian films and I've had a YouTube channel for over five years called Pardesi, which means foreigner or outsider. So it's Pardesi Reviews. And I do, um, reviews of all, um, like the five major languages of Indian films, Hindi, Telugu, Tamil, Malayalam, and Kannada. And I'm lucky to, that where I live, I can usually see a lot of these films in the theaters um, when they come out. And I'm also really obsessed with K-dramas. As I mentioned, I loved classic movie musicals of Hollywood. And to get that musical fix, um, you know, I get that kind of um, from Indian films, but also I've discovered a love, especially during the pandemic, of Korean dramas, which give me that romantic comedy in an extended form, instead of a two hour or three hour movie, I can have a 16 episode, um, you know, arc of a romantic comedy or romantic relationship. And, um, you know, if you love romantic stories, I feel like um, Western media is not giving me that, um, but I'm getting it from other places. And so some other Indian film fans and I started this podcast called Debak, which means awesome in Korean. And we discuss um, Korean dramas, both classic ones and, um, and recent ones, and we really delve into them. I do deep dives, but it's been, you know, there's many that are on Netflix, um, but it's become 
you know, besides Indian films, like uh, K-dramas are where it's at if you want current romantic stories for me. Um, it's, and well, and I mean, I watch Chinese dramas and Thai dramas and whatever, I've expanded it out, but um, I would highly recommend if you like romantic stories and you feel like Hollywood and, um, uh, you know, other Western content isn't giving you those stories, check out some Korean dramas on Netflix and, uh, <laughs> you know, you'll see what I'm talking about. Yeah, you know, I feel like uh, K-dramas and C-dramas, I feel like they've really taken off in the last few years yeah, absolutely. Uh, in popularity. Um, so I'm really glad that uh, you have the podcast. I encourage everyone to listen to it and uh, check out your channel as well. Um, you can find me at on Twitter at Vertigate314. Also, follow the podcast at ipod3u. Remember to rate, review, subscribe, help people find the show. Um, we are continuing in the final month of Bad Romance miniseries um, with Ari Aster's uh, Hereditary. Uh, sorry, Midsommar. We're talking about Midsommar. Um, and um, yeah, so that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, so look out for that. Um, Melanie, thanks again, and thanks for listening. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it so much. <laughs>